Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 18, wherein we are continuing the recent trend of Pro Wrestling Illustrated appearances. Of course, recently, a couple of weeks ago, we had Righteous Reg on the show and had a great conversation about 90s wrestling. And this week, we have the editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Kevin McElvaney. I'll be talking about him in a few minutes. Uh, before that, I just want to get to a few things. Um, just want to start on, I, I guess, a serious note here for a moment. Um, as we all know, some kind of heart-wrenching things happening in the country at the moment with the Uvalde uh, school shooting in Texas, which I think has kind of paralyzed the nation in an unfortunate way. And uh, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, kind of words don't really mean much at a time like this. I think actions are what mean the most. Um, and, you know, we're living in a time when we're all kind of hoping that maybe one day things can change in this country for the better and we won't have to deal with these kind of tragedies anymore. Um, in the meantime, while we wait for that kind of change, Uh, The best thing we can do is to support the families and support the victims at times like this. So I will be posting links on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group through which you can, if you choose, donate through verified um, kind of means, uh, donate to the families of the victims and donate to other uh, worthy causes related to the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. Again, uh, keep an eye out on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group for that information. Our hearts go out to the victims of that terrible tragedy as we try to find a way um, as Americans, as decent human beings, to, to forge ahead and continue to hope that one day we will not have to mourn tragedies like this in this country. So... As I mentioned in that, uh, in in what I just said, there is a Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle. Maybe you are a member of it. Maybe you're not a member of it. If you are not a member of it, you should become a member of it because there's lots of great content that is posted to that group in relation to this show, meaning um, uh, matches, promos, things related to what we talk about, information about guests, past and future. So uh, if you go on Facebook and you search for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, you will find the Facebook group. I want to talk a little bit about my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. The first biography of the original Sheik, of course. I've been talking about it a lot on this show. I want to mention a couple things. One is that the audiobook version 
of Blood and Fire from Tantor Media is now available. It became available as of May 31st. It can be purchased for download wherever you get your audiobooks, and it is narrated by yours truly. So if you want to hear me reading the book, that is your way to do it. If you're interested in a signed copy of the book, I'm still selling those. I have some in my possession. Reach out to me at my email, brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, or you can get me on Twitter at brianrsolomon, and um, we can talk about getting you one of these signed copies of Blood and Fire that I am currently selling. Um, Before I get to our guest, Kevin McElvaney, I want to mention a recent podcast appearance that I did that is definitely worth uh, checking out. It is the the roll-up podcast from Phil Singer Games, F-I-L-S-I-N-G-E-R, Phil Singer Games. And we had a nice, long, very intelligent discussion about The Sheik and Detroit wrestling, his career, and the importance uh, that the Sheik has in the history of pro wrestling. Some uh, great questions, great discussion. I encourage you to check it out. It can be found wherever you get podcasts, the Phil Singer Games Roll-Up Podcast. Okay, now I want to take you to this interview that I did with um, my editor. He's my editor at Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and he has been for the past couple of years now. This is another, you know what, if you like the conversation with Righteous Reg, you're going to like this one too, because it's an in-depth conversation about our experiences as young wrestling fans and kind of growing up in the 80s and 90s. And uh, as a wrestling fan, we talk about cable and VHS, uh, dubbing wrestling tapes and allegedly pirating pay-per-views and all kinds of great stuff like that. So I am going to take you to this wonderful conversation that I had with Kevin McElvaney right now. Okay, so right now it's my pleasure to to bring to the podcast somebody who has the uh, the the luck slash misfortune. To, to read my articles every month because it's his job to read my articles every month. And he uh, he's taken over the, the position of editor-in-chief at Pro Wrestling Illustrated from the legendary Stu Sachs. And I have to say, before I introduce him, I, I, this is me talking because I know he's very modest, so I'm going to be the one to say this. I've been contributing to PWI now on and off for 15 years. But really, the past two years since the pandemic, and I've had all this <laughs> unwanted free time, I've been a full-time member, you know, writing in every issue. And that period has coincided with Kevin taking over the magazine. And so I just want to say that, you know, this magazine is in good hands. And I'm not just saying it because he's here. Uh, he's, he's doing great things with it. And I've watched it develop in the two years since he took over and he's helping to make this publication relevant. So it's my, not that it wasn't before. I don't want to, I'm not trying to knock the, you know, I want to say, keep it relevant. Let's put it that way to keep the magazine relevant. So it's my honor and my pleasure to welcome to shut up and wrestle Kevin McElvaney. Wow, Brian, that that was maybe the uh, most flattering introduction that I've ever had. Uh, so th- th- thank you. And let me just say, it's an honor to be here with the author of the Amazon bestseller, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic, Brian Solomon. Um, and your stuff is a pleasure to edit. Um, and you, we alluded to this before <laughs> we started recording, but you always get it in nice and early for me, which I appreciate even though it's not uh, needed from an editorial standpoint to get it in uh, on 
I don't want to say on time, but to get it in early, like it's, it's, I'm not sending anything back to you. It's never, <laughs> never a need. Well, you know, I, so I mean, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I mean, look, I, I've been, I've been doing this a really long time. Actually, June, I, I, I just took note of this. June will mark 25 years that I have been a professional working writer, somebody getting paid to write, um, you know, and I mean, I had those years where I was, you know, basically doing what you do. So at WWE, so I kind of, know the struggle and I've been on the other side of that. So I try to be as accommodating um, as I could be to, to the editor and the person that has to like spin all the plates. Cause I've spun the plates. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's appreciated and it comes through. Um, and I, conversely uh, that experience that you have has been really good in terms of, you know, things that won't even necessarily show up in the magazine, um, but just the, on the conceptual side. And uh, I think maybe occasionally you've brought them up on the, on the PWI podcast, but you know, you deserve a lot of credit for bringing in concepts and pitches and, and, you know, things that have turned into cover stories and things that I would not have thought to do that are informed by the history of these magazines um, as well as by what's going on in the present. And that's just uh a really cool thing. I mean, even, even just your, your, the way it was column is, you know, it's, it's a retro column and Harry Burkett's columns will have retro elements a lot of times, but we haven't had an explicitly retro column in a long time. Um, and I think, you know, readers of the magazine really appreciate that. Well, I, I think, you know, part of it is like a lot of people probably listening to this, I grew up reading uh, pro wrestling illustrated and of course you know inside wrestling and the wrestler and in in the era that i was you know there's there's been great wrestling magazines going back decades and decades but in the era that i was reading wrestling magazines which is really like maybe the tail end of the 80s going through the 90s the 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 london publishing at the time, wrestling magazines were really, I, I, I could speak for most fans, they were like the most visible ones at that time. Mm -hmm. To me, I always felt, and Pro Wrestling Illustrated, of course, you know, so like just reading it, I remember thinking over the years, I mean, really like, oh, this is something that I might like to do one day. Like even as a kid, like, like, like looking at particular things in the magazine. And I'll be honest, I've said this before, when I was a kid and when I was in college and thinking about writing about wrestling, um, partly when I didn't understand how salaries worked and things like that, <laughs> my number one goal was not to write for WWE magazine. It was to write for pro wrestling illustrated to me, WWE magazine was like, I had outgrown it. You know, I read it when I was like a little kid and I was like, ah, that's the kayfabe magazine that that's for little kids. I want to read <laughs> like the real wrestling magazines, you know? So like it's a dream come true to be able to, to write for you guys. It's similarly, I grew up uh, reading the magazines as well, uh, all three titles that you mentioned, as well as, of course, the WWF and WCW magazines, which were more geared toward the, the actual promotions, though I, worth noting that they were all pretty kayfabe back then, but um, certainly the, the London publishing titles were a bit grittier. Um, and I came in probably a few years after you to reading them, but uh, we're, we're still talking early 1990s remnants of the territory days. Yeah. Uh, still some pretty gruesome images inside the magazine <laughs> that you would not see for, uh, for instance, in WWF magazine. Um, so a lot of history there for me too. 
you know, I've been contributing to PWI if we count my freelancing time, I guess, uh, 16 years and two years ago came on as editor and it's, yeah, I still have to pinch myself when I get up and drive to work in the morning because it's, I, uh, I, I don't want to say never in my wildest dreams, but probably only in my wildest dreams that I would be doing this full-time at the helm of PWI and making a living at it. It's just, uh, it's just wild. It's something to, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but it's something to definitely not take for granted. I mean, it's an incredible thing to be able to say, I make my living in wrestling media, my full-time living. I mean, the number of people is very small that can say that, you know, and you, I am not among them, but, but you are. So, I mean, good for you. That's incredible. And it should be noted, you know, I'm, uh, despite rumors of AEW paying us off, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like uh, raking in the big bills, uh, indoor swimming pools, that kind of thing. But I was oh, able to switch over to this full time from my previous work full time job. Um, it wasn't, uh, I didn't have to worry about doing that. And that, that in itself, I think is a, is a privileged position to be able to take this dream job and not say, okay, you're going to take this job, but you're going to make half of what you're making. You know, it's, uh, it really is a good place to, uh, to be in. Um, and I, that's really when uh, I was in talks to, uh, to replace Stu, that's the one thing he kept bringing up. Like, you know, you're, you're never going to like get rich doing this kind of job, but like, you really can't be writing talking, reporting on pro wrestling for a living that's that's an awesome position to be in that's it i mean you know even even back then like when i was saying when i was in college and i would send clips to all the different magazines and things you know i sent stuff to to bill and Stu, and of course i never got any responses thanks a lot guys but (laughs) um you know i was never even as a young person thinking oh i'm gonna be you know a multi-millionaire all i ever wanted was i I just remember thinking if i could just sort of like if that could just be my job like that's 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 my thing and that's what i loved about working at wwe too and it's still i'm grateful today even to be able to do so much um in wrestling i'm more involved in wrestling media right now than i've been uh, since I was at WWE, so and and PWI is a part of that. I'm just you know to to be able to write every month, and you know I, I love doing the lockup column, and of course the way it was like you were saying, that's like my pride and joy, just because like the the, the reason I love it, and for people that may not have seen it, it, it or have picked up the magazine recently, which you should, it's it's a vintage column. It's it's like uh, kind of retro, like you said. The idea is looking back on old school wrestling, kind of like what this show does. But I thought of it because it was one particular thing that I didn't see in the magazine at the time. And so I was thinking in my head, like, what's something that I can add that's not there already because there's so much good stuff. And I was thinking, like, like, remember, if you remember when we first had the conversation, I I was initially thinking of the photography, like, let's, let's come up with an excuse to use some of those incredible photos that you have in that amazing one-of-a-kind archive over there yep um and if you remember one of the suggestions that was batted around because we didn't know if we had space for a new column in the magazine obviously some stuff has been switched around since then um uh, i think we're making good use of the pages we've also just 
honestly, like we're not running as many ads and stuff. So another sly pitch for the, the current product in there and why people should be reading it. But one of the ideas that we pitched around or batted around was um, basically taking the arena report section and having the spotlight card of the month be a retro card every month. That's and right. you would you would kind of report on that card by way of those captions, which I still think is a fun idea. But ultimately, I prefer what you're doing with the column. And also, let's be honest, there's plenty of uh, current arena events that deserve to be spotlighted. And there are certainly other ways we could look at making better use of the, the photo archive. But that's a, that's a whole other topic. Well, I'd still do it if you ever wanted me to. It, <laughs> it would... <laughs> I did like the idea. I mean, I prefer doing the column, but sure. But, but yeah. it is a cool idea to spotlight, you know, kind of like a uh, a card from the past. But but I want to mention too. Let's just because I, I kind of glossed over this, but I don't want to gloss over this. Just the idea of, and I know people listening will appreciate this, of being somebody who you know grew up as a wrestling fan, l- loved wrestling, was into it, and to be given the stewardship of this iconic wrestling magazine that every wrestling fan over the age of i don't know whatever you want to say of a certain age knows this magazine and probably read it at one point or another and now it's yours you know i mean what what is that like (laughs) it's a thrill the thrill of a lifetime honestly but it's uh nerve-wracking at times because this is um you know there's a a big uh reputation to uphold it was such a, a standard uh, brand within the industry. I mean, it was so closely affiliated, not just with what was on newsstands, but what, with what was going on uh, on television and at the arenas. I mean, you would see Bill Apter showing up um, and taking photos and and appearing side by side with Gordon Soley and on uh, the Lords of the Ring cassette and just all these other. Uh, and then, of course, the presence on the actual television shows and you know, a little, most of that was a little bit before I was actively watching. And that's, that's a function of age more than anything else. But the reality is that there are a lot of people who take this magazine and its history very seriously. Um, And we like to have fun with it, but we also don't want to let go of that because I think there's a role that it can still play. And gosh, even if it never played that role again, there's still this history to uphold. You know, there's, there's just so much that you can look back fondly upon um and i don't want to do anything to jeopardize the way people viewed the magazine in the past it's been this challenge you know trying to update it and make it a little bit more uh vibrant and relevant than it's been in some time but uh at the same time not alienating these longtime readers and every time i i talk to Stu Sachs or i hear from an old time uh reader and they are you know reaching out to comment on something I'm like oh please don't let this be the time that I've ruined the magazine. Like, like let them still be happy with what we're doing. Right. Even if they have feedback, sometimes there's like, Hey, you know, it'd be good this, or I wasn't so crazy about this. What about that? You know? And it's great to get that feedback because none of us are perfect. And we uh, can learn from people who have been around this for so long. Um, but, you know, thankfully for the most part, it's been good feedback. Um, and when it has not been good feedback, I've implemented it. I shouldn't say good feedback when, when, when I haven't been doing a good job in my role and someone gives me good feedback, I'm very, very happy to implement it. And if the feedback seems to be more sour grapes or, okay, maybe this was the case, 
10, 20, 30 years ago, but I, I don't agree with you now. You know, I'll still on, on occasion uh, consider that a, a little more just because it's a long time reader. Um, but I'm way off the rails here with this, uh, Brian. Please edit me. No, if you need no, to, that, no, but... <laughs> no it, it makes a lot of sense because here's the yeah. thing, you know, yeah. this this magazine is special. It just yes. is. And right. look, we all know, I mean, you know, we're not we're not living under a rock. We know in the Internet age of wrestling, you know, especially in the 21st century, that not just wrestling magazines, but magazines, period, magazines in general are less visible than they used to be. They're right. less they're less immediate. You know, there's a difference there. So like um, a magazine has to and this is print or digital, but basically anything you have to pay to read, you know, it has to have something more to it that you can't get other places. And, you know, you can't get online or just mm-hmm. on free websites and things. You have to offer something. And the thing that I love about PWI is that part of what distinguishes it and does the work for you is its name and reputation. You, you know what I mean? Like, because mm-hmm. it's been around so long and people have fond memories of it and they, and not even just people that have memories of it. I even know, and I'm sure you do too, know like young indie wrestlers and people that, you know, n- know the business, even if they weren't around for PWI's heyday and they consider it a very big deal as it yep. should be to be featured in the magazine and things like that. So that goes a long way too, to kind of help to, um, you know, attract, continue to attract readers in a very different kind of media landscape, right? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And you've hit the nail on the head with needing to offer something that is worth paying for. And certainly we put things uh, out into the universe that people don't have to pay for. And you you work very hard with uh, Al Castle on the podcast. Um, and we have other podcasts and we have videos and we have this specifically digital content that is doesn't have anything, any kind of fee attached. But the beyond having this physical object to pick up because in some cases people are have zero room for more magazines in their lives in their homes <laughs> they, they want to buy the digital version and that's that's all well and good too we want the content to be of quality that it is worth paying for so that means columns and this thoughtful analysis and uh honestly i think a big part of it too is the quality of the writing um Harry Burkett mentioned to me a few weeks back in an email exchange we had that he thinks that having good quality writing that is, um, I don't want to say imaginative, but it's, it's, uh, it's evocative and paints a mood of some kind, um, you know, but of a better quality than what you might get on for free on the internet, so to speak. Right. Um, that's part of it. And I think another part of it is the photos. Those are huge for me. I'm, I'm, I've really become a bit of a photo nut over the last few years. And I, I can't operate uh, an SLR lens to save my life, but I really enjoy looking through what's available and how these photographers compose their shots. And then, you know, we certainly print stuff from the promotions in the magazine that you might see online sometimes, but we really do try to work with these freelance photographers as well. And to me, the way that ties back into the history of the magazine is because we used to have all these staff photographers or Mm -hmm. freelancers that we worked with so regularly that they were basically getting a paycheck from us, you know, right. Of course, a a, a recurring sense. 
Um, so, you know, we're getting out there and we're, we're still paying these photographers for their work. Um, and if the demand is not so great to have six wrestling magazines on a newsstand where we can afford a staff photographer, I would at least like to work with people who are out there applying their trade and maybe not always getting enough credit for it. Now, of course, the first guest that I ever had on this show was Stu, Stu Sachs, yep. the longtime, your, your predecessor and the longtime editor-in-chief of, of PWI and the other Stanley Weston magazines. And, you know, I've talked a lot over the years with Bill Apter and I've talked to Craig Peters and stuff. And, you know, I always get so jealous of the idea of what it was like back then. Like, do you ever yep. think about that of like, these guys were just like, I don't know what to even compare it to. It was like just ha- getting to hang out together at the office with a bunch of crazy wrestling fans, do what you love, like spend half the day just kind of having fun and the other half like getting your magazines out. And like just, I don't know, the the, the camaraderie and the, the scrappiness of it. Like it wasn't like WWE where it's this giant corporation it was a bunch of a bunch of men and women, mostly men, but a bunch of a bunch of people hanging out, having fun and putting wrestling magazines together, you know, and now it's just you there. So, I mean, do you, do you <laughs> it's ever very, it's think strange. about that? Brian, pretty much every day. I would love nothing more than to have a team here. And, you know, if there, if the demand becomes great enough and I, and I think wrestling as a whole needs to be generating a lot more money, not just WWE, but everybody else. It really needs to be a, a huge pop culture uh, phenomenon again for this to happen. But I would love to have a team in that that sort of camaraderie that you talked about. Um, even just having, you know, the the freedom to like send people out on assignments more often, things like that would just be fantastic. I think being around people in the same space is really underrated, even as, you know, this does feel like a face-to-face conversation to some extent but the whole being surrounded by people and having a back and forth there's really no substitute for that um and i think one of the thing when i when i think back to what it was probably like in the office and when i hear bill and Stu and craig and eddie elner and everyone else tell their stories i just think about it seems like Murphy Brown meets Animal House. Like it was really, like there was a newsroom feel to it, but it was also a little bit chaotic, uh, maybe a little bit macho at times. Um, I I don't think anything wildly inappropriate was happening. I don't, I don't mean to suggest when I say Animal House that it was out of control, but there was a lot of goofing off and things like that. Right, just the the fun element. I thought of Animal House. I also thought like, Mad Men without the money and toxicity is kind, kind of something that comes to mind. <laughs> just that environment. Um, yeah, just, but just having fun. And, and yes. I remember even when I was on staff at WWE that we had, even though it was very different, you know, and I worked with Frank Fatucci there who started over at PWI as the fo- as a photographer and editor, photo editor. And now he's the photo editor at WWE. But he would always tell me how different it was. But still, we had this like enclave of uh, people having fun, I think, more than anywhere else. Like if you wandered around Titan Tower to all the different office suites and things, we were definitely the closest thing to like a frat house of just and not only that, but it was but it was all wrestling fans like that didn't happen when if you went to accounting or legal or consumer products, you know, we were like the highest concentration and dot com was also like that. But in publications, the highest concentration 
of wrestling fans, the people that grew up with it and, mm-hmm. and that wanted to make it fun. And, and the other thing that I thought was so hilarious might be hilarious to you. And I've told other people, this is that most of the people that worked on that magazine, we also idolized PWI and those other magazines. Like a lot of times we would be going for that kind of vibe. Sure. As far as they would let us go. Like, especially because we were thinking of the classic stuff we grew up with where PWI and some of the other wrestling magazines were trying to create their own storylines, you know, like they'd get photography and just go, can we build a story around this or, you know, some ridiculous, you know, a computer, a computer programs, uh, uh, a way that Ric Flair can regain the NWA world title. <laughs> Here are the strategies that the computer came up with, like that kind of stuff. We would try to do that kind of stuff. We loved it. Didn't uh, now, granted, this is a few years before you were with the magazine, but wasn't that some of what Vince Russo was doing as Vic Venom? Wasn't he kind of creating this yeah. miniature universe in his columns? And yeah, and also I think that you know because you were talking about how yes wwf magazine was definitely targeted towards kids most of the time and very kayfabe but raw magazine was not especially not the early stuff of raw like when because vince russo launched raw magazine in 1996 Mm -hmm. and that was at a time when the tv product was still very sanitized and it hadn't really changed over yet it was still like Mm -hmm. henry godwin and quang and things like that and very like kitty and he was trying to do something consciously that was more like the gritty let's say more like the gritty wrestling magazines of the 70s but less kayfabe like so it would have the violence and the sex and it would have like also the acknowledgement of other promotions and history and things but it would also pull the curtain back and show you the real lives of the wrestlers and things like that i i thought that was an incredible magazine I loved it and I loved working on it too. But that, but when I went there, Oh, this is funny too. I never, I don't think I ever told you this. When I went to work there, Vince Russo had just left to go to WCW and he took another writer named Bill Banks with him who had been a writer on the magazine and he took him to WCW and then there might've been other people too. And they left behind their collection of wrestling magazines. And I would be in Vince Russo's old office, which was occupied by, his assistant, Laura Bryson, who took over WWF magazine and all these old wrestling magazines from the seventies and early eighties, mostly London publishing after magazines, whatever you want to call them, mostly those all dog eared and like, and, 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 you know, like gone over uh, were in there and he was absolutely using them as reference and as inspiration for what he wanted to do. Yeah, that's that's a really cool thing to hear. And I mean, it makes sense because there wasn't there certainly wasn't a WWF magazine back in the 1970s. You know, it was launched much later. Um, And even then, it didn't necessarily have its own identity for a while outside of being a vehicle to promote the WWF product. Um, And then, of course, that changed over time. And then you get people in there like not just Vince Russo, but then later on the Brian Solomons of the world working across the various WWE titles. So um, it's awesome to hear that these magazines that I am now um, working to keep, keep alive in some sense and that you are as well, you know, because you're, you're part of the team and doing so much for us. 
um, that they were so formative um, and that, you know, indirectly they led to some really big things. Because if, if you want to think about it, I mean, you know, Vince Russo didn't end up in that uh, writer's roundtable with Vince McMahon and Jim Cornette and so on by accident. You know, he didn't right. just wander in there one day or apply off the street. He was working for the magazine and, and showed his potential. So, yeah. Did, did you ever hear the story about him and Vince McMahon and how he got that job on TV creative? It, I must it, have at some point, but it's escaping me now. It was very much connected to the magazines. And this yeah. was like office legend when I worked there. Like I, I never met him, but I would hear this story from people that knew him. And it was, like I said, he was doing stuff in raw magazine that was very, very edgy and different and in your face and more aggressive than what was on TV at the time. And that's what Raw Magazine was. And there was a story that um, he got, I'm trying to remember that there's a couple of different versions of the story, but one was that he basically got called up into a meeting with Vince and other people were there. And Vince took an issue of Raw Magazine, tossed it on the boardroom table and said, I want my TV to be like this magazine. Can you do that? And Vince Russo said, yes, I could do that for you. And that was kind of like how that partnership uh, was, was formed, you know, straight out of the magazines from looking at the magazines, the magazines were leading the way, you know, yeah. in that example. It's, and, it's and, you know, wild to think about that. Yeah. And, and you know what I, 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 the way I look at it too, especially because like we were saying how uh, the, the, the independent wrestling magazines like like PWI and the wrestler and sports review wrestling and all those ones from back in the day, even non Western ones like wrestling review and the ring wrestling, they were inspirations to people that would go on to do, you know, to work at WWE on, on like the most elite level of the pro wrestling business. It reminds me because I'm, I'm a big movie guy, as you know, but it reminds me of something like, you'll hear like these high level directors of the last like 50 years and filmmakers. And they'll talk about working for Roger Corman, who was like the B movie director of the sixties and seventies. And like, he's revered and idolized and influence and is the influence of these filmmakers who are, you know, at the elite level of Hollywood, but to them where their heart will always be, is with Roger Corman and with, with his production. That's kind of like what some of these independent wrestling magazines are like to me. It's like, you know, um, I mean, Stone Cold Steve Austin, when I would talk to him, he would talk about it too, like how he the wrestling magazines and things were were his biggest inspiration. And he, he preferred reading them to reading the dirt sheets where, you know, people would be running him down and, and stuff. And, and here he is, the top star in the business. And he loves these magazines too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what you grow up around and what you consume. And obviously as you get more and more into things, you look, well, what, what else can I watch, read, learn about this? You know, and that's, that's not just wrestling. I think that's anything. I think, you know, when I was a, a kid and getting really into baseball, I did the same thing. I would, I would rent whatever videos were at the video store, watch documentaries, read, uh, magazines and books and such. And, and, and you do the same thing with wrestling. Yes. Um, and it's interesting that this kind of on the fringes, so to speak. And I mean, I, I don't think after um, PWI and the associated publications, 
like became mainstream as much as they were ever going to become mainstream. You could make that same argument, but to think of them and as other wrestling magazines as this like fringe content is kind of an interesting way of looking at it. And yeah, these were really rough around the edges. They had really gritty content in them. Um, and, and the thing you're talking about with Roger Corman, I mean, I, I always think back to music as an example. And I mean, you look at the David Geffens and Madonnas of the world who very much started out on this cutting edge counterculture uh, sort of milieu. And then they work up and become the, the flag bearers and mm. then they're what's mainstream. And then other people are learning from them. So indirectly, this really raw stuff uh, like the magazine. <laughs> are is, uh, is is having this influence on the current normal if that makes sense it's it's it totally it's interesting makes sense. to think about it totally makes sense and i and i want to mention something that you brought up because we haven't even gotten into which i do want to talk about just even your your early years as a fan as a kid but you yeah. mentioned something that really sparked my memories of, of talking about the video stores because oh, yeah. You know, people can have their everybody. People like to uh, kind of get nostalgic about video stores, you know, especially people that remember them. And they'll talk about, you know, the horror movie section and oh, my God, what that was like. And you'd be afraid of the box covers and things like that. <laughs> and I had that experience for sure. But for me, also the wrestling section, I yeah. mean, because it felt like back then, I don't know what it was like, maybe pro wrestling was just like ahead of the curve on this market or whatever. But there's there seemed like there was way more wrestling videotapes than any other like actual sport. You know what I mean? Like you'd go to the sports section and more than more than football, baseball, basketball, even boxing, like it would be wrestling would just dominate the section, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know you uh, have some feelings about blockbuster versus the mom and pops i don't believe we had a mom and pop near us we had a, right. a blockbuster video and then a, a west coast video which was a smaller chain um but yeah every week we go to that blockbuster video my sister would rent typically like a berenstein bears tape which i would also watch with her as a kid <laughs> and um of fond memories of that but yeah mostly wwf cassettes i think a few wcw in there as well but rented every single tape in that store multiple times over yes and they, and it was, I think at that point, they had essentially every pay-per-view that existed and a few of the Coliseum tapes. The Coliseum tapes with that were compilations, typically what would happen with those is when those would get marked down enough, I would, my mom would buy them for me at the Kmart up the street. Um, <laughs> but just gobbling those up and there was so much out there. Yeah. And I would, um, you know, for people that remember, if you're old enough too, that, you know, you could dub videotapes, right? If you had two VCRs, I'm really, we're going to get a, a lot of trouble here now. Maybe the statute of limitation is expired, but you <laughs> would get clear. <laughs> if you had two VCRs, you, which I did finally, I, you know, you could get these dubbing wires. You could connect the two VCRs. You'd play one tape on one VCR. You'd have a blank tape in the other VCR and you could copy the tape. Now, some tapes had a block on them where if you tried to do that, it would be all distorted and terrible, but a lot of them didn't. And I spent, I want to say a couple of years, I mean, like two or three years of going to my video store, renting these wrestling tapes and just copying them and having this huge collection. Oh. I thought I was like, you know, like some master criminal or something <laughs> I'd have. And, and, you know, I remember, 
Um, so for example, like WWF with the Coliseum videos, there was a point, and I could tell you exactly when it was, it was like the end of 1988 or the very beginning of 89, somewhere around there. Uh, you know what? No, it might've been 87. It's been a while at a certain point. They started putting this like silver, whatever it was called. Uh, it was a special block they would put on their tapes. So if you tried to dub them over and copy them, it would be all weird and distorted. So like those first couple of years of Coliseum videos, when you could still copy them, I had them all. And to tell you the truth, even the ones with the distortion, if it was something that I had to have, <laughs> I would still copy it and watch it all sure. distorted. It was like trying to watch like the porno channel if you didn't scrambled. have yeah, scrambled, <laughs> you know, it was like that. But I mean, I would, I, and it wasn't just even Coliseum and, and the big ones. I used to freak out over finding um, like independent wrestling tapes that would just have random footage and, and things that to this day, I try to track down because I got rid of all my VHS, but I still every now and then will try to track them down. And now what I do is I convert them to digital. But I mean, like I try and track these things down still to this day. It's just still in me. <laughs> and I had some of those random tapes as well. And I mean, I don't even know who put them out. Most of them. I mm -hmm. don't think I actually had it, uh, either of the PWI ones, but I had just stuff that had a lot of Memphis wrestling on it and, yes. uh, and AWA matches and it, but again, not an AWA tape. So this may have been like a bootleg scenario, but it was like Hogan as a heel jobbing to stan hansen like that sticks out or not stan hansen nick bockwinkle um, oh yeah yeah i, th I <laughs> just, think that there was one called hulk hogan the missing matches which <laughs> which i was very fond of there was a whole series yeah. there was like randy savage the missing matches andre the giant the missing matches and it would be just they would find these these like major wwf superstars that were hot yep. and show territorial footage of them before they became really big in the WWF or just before they came to the WWF. But you, you mentioned Memphis. Now I'm going to mention this one in the hopes now that I have this platform that somebody will hear this and will point me in the right direction. There was a tape, a Memphis tape that I found at Blockbuster video and I copied it back in the day and I don't have it anymore. And it's one I have not been able to find. It was called Mad Men, Maniacs and Lunatics. <laughs> and it was all Memphis and it had a lot of Andy Kaufman stuff and the cover almost looked like now that I think about it all these years later, it almost looked like the cover was something that was like illustrated by Jerry Lawler, you know, which would make sense. But mm. I I've tracked down a lot of those old wrestling tapes over the years, but that is one I have never been able to find again. So if anybody knows where to get Mad Men, Maniacs and Lunatics, please let me know. I'm dying to find it. I think that was released by the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> I, have, I have so much, you know, there's a video store by me, which I've mentioned on the air before, called The Archive. And they're in Bridgeport. I give them free advertising. I'm going to have to like start like shaking them down. But they're, <laughs> they're associated with vinegar syndrome, which for people that know, you know, exploitation cinema and things like that, they're a big distribution remastering and distribution house for kind of like c grade cinema just real schlock sure. and they have their own video outlet store in bridgeport which is like people come from all over the country to find this place and um they had at one time they have a vhs like room in the basement 
and they came into uh, just a just like a cache of wrestling videotapes. And I don't, you know, it's not even so much anymore for me, the WWF ones, because those I've seen a million times. It's finding those weird indie ones from the 80s and 90s that and they had them. And I snatched up a bunch like there were there were these. Do you remember the ones that would have like it would be like there was one that had like Ricky Steamboat. Another had like Jake the Snake. There was a Roddy Piper one, except everything on there. It was mainly just mid-Atlantic, like Crockett matches of them. There were those and like AWA Mm -hmm. stuff. Yep. And, And I snatched it. I bought the entire stack that they had and and just took it home with me oh that's awesome i definitely had a lot of those um yeah let's take this person who's currently on wwf or wcw tv right. and sell all of the early footage that is not owned by <laughs> and of course wwf and wcw weren't you know mass acquiring footage back then it was it was still out there and you know these these independent houses could put these out um yeah just a, a lot of uh you know, I, again, I'm sure not as m- much as uh, you were doing with your two VCRs. I was but. the man. <laughs> I would I, sit you know, there and just, you, and you would have to play it in real time. So you would have to just sit there and sure. like watch it, you know, and I didn't mind. Well, since you admitted to a crime, let's Thelma and Louise <laughs> this. I, when I was a kid, sure. I had uh, the, I can say now had the infamous uh, black box which oh, was yes. the I've heard of that, Kevin. I've heard of this. Phenomenon. You've heard of it. <laughs> yes. I'm, I've, I've heard that people were yeah. doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> allegedly I had the black box at my house when I was a kid. Now the funny thing with this is I guess I didn't realize how it worked for a long time. Cause I was young, you know, I'm like, Oh, you can watch your wrestling now. Like we can, we can actually watch the show. And eventually I learned what it was and then eventually connected the dots that it was, it was stealing <laughs> these pay-per-views <laughs> allegedly. Uh, and I was a young Catholic boy with undiagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> so eventually when it's I can a bad combination, me, Kevin. Yes, yes. It occurred to me, oh, I'm going to hell for doing this. <laughs> so I would my and my parents would bring this up for years because eventually I gave I gave up on this and just started watching the shows again. But they would make jokes about how they would put the pay-per-view on and like, Kevin, like like Halloween Havoc, come on, or like whatever was on at the time and um come watch it. And then I would go through the, the room to the kitchen to get a snack. I'm like, I'm not watching. I'm not watching, covering my face. And <laughs> I'm not, you could all sin. I'm not going to sin. Uh, yeah. I'm still recovering from all that. I, I should probably talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> well, I remember, you know, because there'd be all the warnings and disclaimers. Yes. So I always had this fear that like the FBI would be pounding on our door, sure. you know, like t- hauling me off to jail. And, and, you know, the thing is, every now and then you would hear, um, of somebody getting like busted, but it would usually be the people making those boxes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There'd be and like I- a raid or something, and they then they would tell you, "We're gonna lay low for a few months. We're not gonna we're not gonna pirate any of these bootleg any of these pay per views for just a few months until the heat blows over." You know. And I think the uh, cable companies eventually developed a technology that could zap these boxes oh, so they didn't they did. work anymore. Yeah. Um, but it was. Uh, I remember specifically when I, 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 of course, brought up that part of it to the legal side and it was being told, like, do you know how many cops I know who have these? And like, <laughs> again, <Yes>. allegedly. <laughs> 
And to get it to work, you would have to be like, it was almost like trying to like break into Fort Knox. It, it was like the, you know, trying to like get the cheat codes on a video game console, like left, yeah. left, right, right, up, down. Like you would have to be a rocket scientist sometimes to get it to work right. And then they would sometimes send, remember they used to call it the bullet. They'd send like the bullet through the cable company and it would like re-scramble everybody's thing. So sometimes yeah. in the middle of a show, it would happen and all of a sudden, boom, it's off and you can't watch the rest of it. Again, allegedly, but supposedly uh, <laughs> hearsay circumstantially. Yes. I remember there was a little switch on there too. And you would flip that back and forth. And that was the, I, I don't know. I, I think that may have been the equivalent of blowing into the Nintendo cartridge. I don't know how much that actually <laughs> did, but it was meant to unscramble. Right. And you know, box. I had one, I remember one, well, so I allegedly had one where um, you would, <laughs> I remember like you could program it where not only, I mean, this was like way before they figured out how to block this. Sure. It wasn't even just so much. I'm going to unscramble this particular pay-per-view. There was a thing you could do where it would unlock everything. So like for days and days on end. So, so basically every pay-per-view channel, including pay-per-view movies, everything were just running like a regular cable channel. Like you'd, well, you'd be able to watch, you know, the, the, the silence of the lambs like yep. 20 times a day right after each other for, yep. for nothing, you know? Well, that, that is again, allegedly how this right. worked allegedly. in the house that I may or may not have lived in <laughs> growing up. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't there. I never saw it, but, <laughs> but yeah, it helped. It definitely uh, helped because, I mean, look, there were this is before WWE Network. This is before yeah. $9.99 a month. These damn things were expensive, especially if you were a fan of, you know, both WWF and WCW. And I remember, you know, and then WWF all of a sudden is doing them every month. And yeah. then WCW responded by starting to do them every month. And I'm like, I'm losing my mind. There would be a, it was one thing when there were three a year, you know. But then yeah. sometimes there'd be like the WCW one and the WWF one would be like a week or two apart. I mean, I, I didn't have that kind of money, Kevin. I just wanted to no, watch. No, no. Yeah, it, certainly I didn't either. And then um, I actually, during the, the peak Monday Night War era, I was actually not watching for a lot of that. I don't know if we've talked about that before, but I, and it wasn't because like, oh, this product suddenly turns me off. It was just, I was interested in other things. I was more into, I got into other sports for a while. I got really just headlong into music and immersed myself in that and got back into it really at the tail end of all that. And even then, as someone who had a very part-time job trying to scramble together the money for just WWE pay-per-views once right. a month. And then, you know, they started to do 15 pay-per-views a year for a while there. And um, sometimes having conversations with friends, like do enough of us want to see this, that we can justify pulling our money together to watch this tonight. That's this is a lot of money. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd always have I would always have people over like to yeah. try to just to, to try to soften the blow yeah. and split the it. Well, I still I still do that today with AEW and other things. I, yeah, no, I try so to have I, people yep. over and, and we and we we share in the expense. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the yeah. the I also had the the disadvantage of not even having cable television for a lot of that, you know, because in those days, um, most of the cable was wired, you know, so yep. it would be like buried under the street in your neighborhood and they would run a line into your house. And if your neighborhood was not wired for cable, 
then you couldn't get cable. I mean, you would have to get like an antenna or like a dish, you know, like dish network or something like that. And um, so my neighborhood didn't get wired for cable TV until 1992. So I was wow. not even able to watch. So like in the, did you go to that, the closed circuit things? Or? Yeah, I would like a couple of WrestleManias. I went to closed circuit. Also, sometimes I would go over other people's houses. If somebody sure. had like my neighbor had the dish or like a friend of ours had cable and we go over there, but it right. wasn't until 92 that I could watch it in my own home. Like I remember um, the first pay-per-view I will never forget this, that I was able to watch in my own home was SummerSlam 92, uh, Wembley Stadium. So it was all downhill from there. But that was the first (laughs) one that I actually got to see at home. And I like I had people over. It was like a huge event in my own home. We're watching this. That was a big deal. Right in the middle of the day. Right. It was. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Didn't they have it they, because of the time? Did they air, oh, no, 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 no. Later. It was tape delay. It was tape. Delay. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember that because I, it had already happened. And of course, this was before the Internet and we weren't sure. really that plugged in. And I mean, even like I used to listen to um, radio shows and hotlines and things, but uh, I don't even think the radio shows had had a chance to really dissect it yet or hear about it. I knew nothing about the Wrestling Observer. So I definitely went in cold, not knowing what was going to happen on that on that uh, that card. Yeah, very different world back then. It's I, I don't know how many I'd imagine that most of your listeners would at least have some understanding of this era. But imagine someone who, you know, is a little bit younger, maybe a couple of years out of college. Um, just got into wrestling a couple of years ago and is hearing all this. They just they don't even in. Uh, uh, living in a world how thing uh, where, where things operated in that manner is probably just so far into them. And then, you know, wrestling has just always been there and you've had a, a million options and for the past, however many years, it's been pretty affordable, you know? So. Yeah. And I mean, like I couldn't even get into um, WCW that much until I got cable because sure. so much of it was cable based. Um, yeah. I, I had been watching it for about a year or two before I got cable, but like the only way I could watch it was in the New York market on regular broadcast TV. They had WCW worldwide on CBS, which was channel two in my, in New York city. And, but it would be on at weird times. Like I remember at one point it was at 1230 in the morning on Saturday nights. Wow. Um, and then I think it was on Saturday mornings for a while, but that was the only show. And as people remember, that wasn't even their main show. Their main show, of course, was 605 Saturday night on TBS. And I heard about it and I just had no way of watching it. So that was really cool, too, that I could watch. When I got cable, the first thing I did was go through the TV guide and find all the non-WWF wrestling that I could find that I had only heard about that I could finally watch mm-hmm. and 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 just start watching it like global that's how I found ECW, like whatever was sure. out there, I would, I would tape it or watch it. it it's funny because um, even something as small as that, I, I take for granted the, the way I heard about WCW was a neighbor of ours who was very, very casually into wrestling, maybe watched it more a few years earlier when his, his kids were watching it. Um, and he said, you know, there's another wrestling it's on uh, Saturday mornings, I think. And then, I don't even know if he told me about the Saturday night show, but right. I remember tuning into the Saturday morning show first, uh, which was on after uh, Bonanza re- re- rerun. So every time, 
<laughs> oh, that's right. It's a theme yes. song in an ad or something. I, yeah, I think of uh, <laughs> early '90s WCW, and it makes me, uh, you know, slight warm feeling inside. Um, yeah. But I, if, had I not had cable, I, I couldn't have just tuned into that. It wouldn't have been so easy to casually check it out. And it's something that I ended up really enjoying. You know, on on the same level, pretty much as as the WWF product of that time, even as a child, where like the WCW product wasn't necessarily geared as much toward me. Um, I would mm. sit and I would daydream about the the eventual Hogan Sting match and how great that would be, and you know the heroes of these two companies going head to head. Ah, yeah, We're and, and, and I fell I fell in <laughs> love, but like you know, I I'm the big champion of early '90s WCW, and I freely yep. admit that a big part of that is because, like I just described with '92 and everything, sure. that was when I first got to really follow them. So like by the summer of 92, I'm starting to watch WCW Saturday night. Right. And the show that used to be just called world championship wrestling. I watched that and I would watch WCW main event on Sunday nights, um, which was like their B show every mm -hmm. week. And I got to start watching clash of the champions. Like that was huge for me because, you know, it was like the WCW version of Saturday night's main event, you know, which was on NBC. So anybody could watch it, but like, even before SummerSlam 92, the first big wrestling show that I got to watch on cable was actually Clash of the... It wasn't pay-per-view, but it was WCW Clash of the Champions 20. And I remember it because it was... If people remember this one, it was a very special one because it was celebrating the 20th anniversary of wrestling on TBS. So they did this whole anniversary show. They had a red carpet. I mean, no joke with limos pulling up and like, you know, Ron Simmons, the world heavyweight champion gets out. Bruno San Martino is there. Yep. Jim Barnett, Andre the Giant and me, my head exploding at home because all I'd ever <laughs> seen up to that point was like 99% WWF. That was like a life changing night for me watching that show. I believe that was one of the first events that I watched on the network uh, after it was launched. Like there were some things that I put on just immediately for nostalgic value. And uh, of all things, I think, I put, uh, the, what was the pay-per-view that Jay Leno was on? Oh, hog wild, right? A road uh, wild. Yeah, one, one of, of those the two. motorcycle ones. But yeah. A friend, a friend of mine and I watched that kind of for a laugh in a B-movie sort of way. That was one of the early things I put on. But when I sat down, I'm like, okay, what have I not seen in a really long time or I don't know if I've ever seen it in its entirety? And I was going back and through the uh, old WCW footage. And yeah, that was one of the early ones. Or, or if Clash of the Champions wasn't up when they first launched, launched the network, it could have been a little bit later. But I definitely have a memory of, um, yeah, this... this uh, anniversary feel and people pulling up in the limo the limos and people talking about the significance of i think there were even just saying was it it was the anniversary of uh, clash of champions but it was also the anniversary of wrestling on turner networks right wasn't that right it up? Yeah. so the idea was yes it was the 20th clash of the champions but because of 1992 was the 20th anniversary of wrestling in general being carried on on tbs networks and it wasn't yes. even just you know, it had only been, I mean, obviously WCW had only been in existence for four years. Mm -hmm. And before that, you know, Crockett had only been on TBS for like three or four years. 
So really, uh, most of that history was actually Georgia Championship Wrestling. And they were just kind of encompassing all of it, saying it's been 20 years that we have had wrestling featured on this network Saturday nights at 605 since 1972. And so like you had, I mean, during the show, they were playing clips, if you remember, and like they'd be Mm -hmm. playing like old Georgia clips, like of people that I didn't have familiar with because I only knew the legends of the WWF. So like Thunderbolt Patterson is there talking and Mr. Wrestling two playing an old clip of, of Mr. Wrestling two. And I remember they even showed Ric Flair in the glory days of world championship wrestling. Like when he was world champion, even though by that point he was in the WWF, like they still showed him and it just, you know what it was? It gave me a sense, like, you know, like I love the, the, the interconnectedness and the history of pro wrestling. It yeah. gave me a sense of that interconnected history that I wasn't getting from watching WWF, which existed like, and it's just in a bubble with nothing else, you know? And I think that's one of the coolest things about professional wrestling as a sport and as an art form. Um, and even now, when WWE decides that it is part of that larger landscape with things like the legacy hall of fame inductions or um, acknowledging the influence of the Steiners when they want to put over Braun Breaker, even if he's not using that name. Right. Um, those are some of my favorite mo- moments. I mean, I, I mean, I'll just say it. I marked out when Cody not only mentioned, Hey, my daddy had the WWF championship, but he said the belt. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know how I am a stickler for that word. Um, but but talking about how, hey, Dusty Rhodes did so much amazing stuff in the business, but he never won this one title and it ate away at him and it certainly eats away at me now. So that's why I'm back here. Out of all the reasons that Cody Rhodes, even in kayfabe, comes back to WWE, whew, that's it. Because it, it acknowledges the totality of pro wrestling as being this thing that it goes all over the world. And right. It, it's all these different promotions and so much rich history behind it. And uh, yeah, kind of giving myself goosebumps here. No, I, I, I love <laughs> angles like that, that draw from the history. And yes, even though I know, you know, a lot of times WWE and other wrestling promotions, they're not the only ones, but they're guilty of, like you said, they will take an interest in history when there's a chance to right. like, make money from it. But to me, that's still better than nothing. That's better than not acknowledging history. When And also sometimes it could make a storyline exciting yeah. if you have, you know, what fans can perceive as this quote unquote real connection, you know, to something that happened a long time ago. It just makes it feel uh, even more important. And I even remember uh, Cody mentioning this very thing when he was still in AEW, which mm-hmm. made me scratch my head at the time. And even then I'm going like, is he angling to go back there? You know, why is he mentioning right. the title they took away from my daddy in the garden, you know, right. on an AEW show <laughs> that was wild. It, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it certainly enhances it because otherwise Cody just comes in and he's one of many people who I never got to win this championship. Okay. But like, welcome to the club. It's called everybody. Um, But nobody has that unique story of uh, being dejected as a child, as your father, Dusty Rhodes, your hero, you know, was not really WWF champion and he had to give that belt back. What I think, no, go on. No, no, that's, I said it. Now, I was going to say what I think is cool about that, too, is 
you know, as we all know, Cody and Dustin, there's a very big age difference there. So like, I think it's like 15 years or maybe more even of an age difference. So like, I really do believe that Cody, I, I think it's more than an angle. I think that's something that's important to Cody. Like the fact that his dad never got to win that. Why it's interesting to me is that, you know, Back in the 70s, really, truly, the title in the industry that was more well-regarded and was more widely recognized was the NWA world title in more places, which Dusty did win. But here's the difference. Like Dustin, the older brother, he was a kid when his dad was on top of the business. He got to see his dad as the NWA world heavyweight champion when it was still a very big deal, the number one deal. But with Cody, you know, he was born in the mid 80s. So by the time of Cody's living memory, like he's not aware of all that. Or, I mean, it's not top of mind. He grew up as a little kid in the 90s, probably, you know, idolizing Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior and things like that. And going like, Dad, you know, you were you were a wrestler like these guys. Did you ever be were you ever WWF world champion? Because that's the title that means the most to him as a little kid in the 90s. So for his dad to say, well you know, no, uh, you know, I, I wrestled for that title way back when, and, and they never put it on me. Like you could understand why for someone his age, that would mean even more than saying, well, yeah, but your dad was three time NWA world heavyweight champion. It's not the same thing for somebody of that age who grew up watching wrestling in the nineties. I totally get that. Like it makes total sense to me, you know? Yeah. It feels real. Even if it's not 100% factually real. Right. Um, it's authentic. Right. And I think it's great because it is relatable on this human level. But for those of us who have been around wrestling this long and look at it as this one continuous presentation, um, that's just a fun little nugget that in- can enhance our enjoyment. Um, and, you know, it feels it feels a little bit like you're getting away with something, too. Like it's the it's the uh, the forbidden candy of, oh, WWE is acknowledging there's other wrestling out there. Right. <laughs> and not only that, but I always get a kick out of when they acknowledge that the WWF existed before Vince owned it. You know, <laughs> that's an, that's another pet peeve of mine. Yeah, that's why like years ago, I was so glad when they finally uh, inducted Bruno San Martino into the Hall of Fame, you know, because so often there's this reluctance and it's a lot less now than it used to be. But there's this reluctance for Vince the current Vince to acknowledge, you know, the world wrestling Federation or world wrestling entertainment before he, he actually owned it, you know, it's because it, cause it's not something like he himself built and created, which I get. So there's not the same level of pride in it. Maybe, you know? Yeah. I mean, down to the name with the extra W being uh, removed, but you have uh, someone like Bruno Sarah Martino. I, I, I mean, it's worth noting that was on both sides. Uh, because Bruno, of course, had his objections to the current version of the product, like moral objections. And, you know, there were some mutual bad feelings there. Um, And I think Stu talked to you on this podcast about that was always one of his goals to kind of mend that fence or help mend that fence. And ultimately, Triple H was able to do it. Um, But it's uh, it is refreshing when you see little nods to that, even in just something like the uh, you know, the Capitol Wrestling Center and that kind of thing. Right. Um, Which is no more, but still, you know, at the time it was very cool. And and I think that's part of why people have such a, you know, it wasn't always perfect, but the rose colored glasses for that Triple H era of NXT, because it it was so 
it placed WWE within this broader context and said, you know, at the same time, still, this is where everybody wants to be. And mm. that's, they're all headed to NXT because this is where we care about wrestling. So yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe one day again, but not, not for a little while. <laughs> well, I mean, for the time being though, you know, the cool thing, and this is like my way of tying everything with a neat little bow. The cool thing about magazines and especially <laughs> pro wrestling illustrated is that it serves that purpose. No matter what the other companies are doing, no matter what's in their best interest promotionally and what they're trying to promote and plug, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and I, as the as the elite wrestling magazine and one of the only ones left, is able to freely do exactly that every, with every issue. Just ex, you know, write about what's interesting in the business. They're not trying to sell something other than the actual magazine itself. So you know, what's the best content to have? What's the most interesting stories or people to profile and that kind of thing. You have the freedom to do that. So it's a special uh, line of work that you're in. And I'm glad to be able to even contribute to it in my own way. I thank my lucky stars every day that I'm able to do that and that I have great uh, contributors like you, Brian, um, and along for the ride and guiding me and the uh, it's so many different uh, directions and offering this historical perspective that, you know, I, I, will admit I'm trying to catch up with a lot of the history because I had some of it and there was a lot of it. I forgot. Um, and certainly I have access to this, but just you're, you're an, an encyclopedia. Um, so you're very valued in that regard. Uh, you Harry Burkett as well. Um, and just, I think everybody brings something unique to the table. And I f- firmly feel that the magazine is, is in a better place now than it was a couple of years ago. Um, and I and I think it is because of the contributors such as yourself who are able to come in and bring in these new ideas and and sometimes, you know, nostalgic ideas to be added into the mix. Well, this has been the mutual, the mutual admiration society today <laughs> on Shut Up and Wrestle. I hope everyone's enjoyed I'll come it. Come on and argue <laughs> with you another time. We'll, we'll right. The, remember when Stu, Stu Sachs would say on the PWI podcast that it was really great with me and Al Castle, but we needed to disagree more. We were getting along too much. So <laughs> I'll try to disagree more with you. No, but but yes, the, the, but this has been fun talking about you know what we love and and the ability to work together is very cool. So I hope people have enjoyed listening to this and I'm just grateful that you took time out of your day to, to, to come on and talk about this stuff. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. There you have it folks. My conversation with the editor in chief of pro wrestling illustrated Kevin McElvaney. I hope you enjoyed that and found it as much fun to listen to as I did to, uh, to do And that's not all, because if you keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle, we've got great guests on the way. So next week, this excites me very much. Um, Some of the guests that I have on here, I know are going to be a particularly uh, interesting and fascinating time. And next week is one of those. If you're a fan of the 605 Super Podcast, then you know who this is and you know his track record. I'm talking about Howard Baum. We had... A hilarious stream of consciousness 
uh, conversation that went all over the place. And I loved every minute of it. And it's coming next week. And you're going to love it. And yes, I did get him to do a little bit of his Don Morocco. So that is coming also in the weeks to come. Um, the perfect 10 baby doll been mentioning her lately. She will be coming up on shut up and wrestle very soon. And I'm also working on, I'm keeping this under wraps for the moment, but I'm working on another, uh, for those of you who remember when I had Deborah Jazway on from WWE creative services in Titan tower, I'm working on another Titan tower employee coming up very soon. Someone I actually worked with very closely in my time at WWE uh, will be coming to shut up and wrestle very soon. So keep an eye out for that. Also um, speaking of Kevin McElvain, uh, of Kevin McElvaney, I want to mention uh, pro wrestling illustrated and how you can get it. Of course, get PWI.com is the place you can go to, to order issues of the magazine in print or digital form. And of course I have to mention inside the ropes magazine, the other wrestling magazine that I contribute to regularly, which you can purchase at inside the ropes magazine.com. As for the book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic. You can get print or digital copies everywhere. Go to Amazon. Go wherever you want, wherever you buy books. You'll find it. And the audiobook version is also now available for Blood and Fire. If you're looking for me, of course, on social media, I can be found at Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Um, there is the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group that I've mentioned. Or if you want to go to my author page on Facebook, just look up Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will also find links to my author web page. So as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that it's better to keep your mouth closed and be thought a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. So long, wrestling fans. 